Okay, we're live. Hi, this is William Ramsey. Welcome to William Ramsey Investigates. On today's show, I have a very special guest. His name is Stephen Marsh. His last name is spelled M-A-R-C-H-E. He's just published a book January 4th, 2022. Really a fascinating book. Very timely book. I enjoyed reading it. Title of the book is The Next Civil War, Dispatches from the American Future. And Mr. Marsh is a novelist and culture writer who has written for The Atlantic, The New York Times, The Wall Street Journal, The New Yorker, Esquire, and pretty much everywhere else. His books include three novels, The Hunger of the Wolf, Raymond and Hannah, and Shining at the Bottom of the Sea, as well as The Unmade Bed and How Shakespeare Changed Everything. And he's from and lives in Toronto with his wife and children. But uh, really interesting book, highly recommended. I think that it's kind of quasi nonfiction fiction or something, but there's a lot of references to real events, but speculative future events. But he can talk more about that. So Stephen Marsh, mm -hmm. welcome to the show. Pleasure to be here. Awesome. So thanks for agreeing to the interview. And for people who may not have heard some of your earlier books or your other writings in some of these publications, can you talk about your background and what led you to write The Next Civil War? Uh, well, I mean, I'm a novelist and a journalist. I do both of those things. Um, and this book sort of is both of those hats. I mean, it's really, it's speculative nonfiction. That's what I'm calling it. So it's imagined scenarios of future civil war in the United States. Um, but based on research. There's not a word in this that isn't based on research. It's really not a work of imagination so much as it's a, it, you know, I interviewed about 200 people for it and I, it's drawn from the best possible models. Um, my model writing it was uh, the day after, which was um, the, the mini series about a nuclear attack on Lawrence, Kansas, which was actually originally a, a small piece of fiction written for, for a congressional report on what fallout from nuclear war would look like. And, you know, it also was fiction, but on the other hand, it was very much based on the science. And so and I that wanted was, to- Sorry to interrupt, but that was a huge show. I think it was in the eighties or seventies, but that it broke is the biggest, all kinds- It is to this day, the biggest most watched show in the history of television. Wow, yeah. right. So really- I think it had 180 too. million viewers at one point. Like it was bigger than the MASH finale. It was, it changed history too, because Reagan saw it and began the nuclear uh, treaty negotiations immediately afterwards. He records it in his diary. So, you know, that was, that, that was a wake-up call for people. And I, the idea for this book is to do the same kind of thing for the crisis facing America. Great. And so you broke it up into five different parts. You called them dispatches. But your intro, I think, is important because it talks about the immediate future. Can you talk about some of the facts and situations we're in uh, from the U.S. And, and your perspective being just a little bit above the border? Well, I, I mean, the United States is a textbook case of a country headed for civil war. Um, like it, it's when you talk to the experts at PRIO, the Peace Research Institute of Oslo, um, you know, the things that they see in much poorer, much more, you know, much more historically troubled countries than the United States, they're starting to see in in the in the big country in the United States. And those things are, uh, you know, really, really high levels of vertical and horizontal inequality, uh, hyperpartisanship and the decline of legitimacy of institutions, um, treating politics as spoils uh, and as well as environmental degradation, which has enormous costs associated with it and can and leads also to great amounts of anger, as well as, you know, um, the racial dynamic of a majority uh, ethnic population losing its majority status, which all around the world 
um, you know, everywhere. That's not particular to the pathologies of American uh, racism. That's something that you see everywhere in the world uh, that that tends to lead to violence. So structural problem, like, you know, I think it's very easy in these angry times to get caught up in the horse race politics. Like, what is Marjorie Taylor Greene's Twitter feed says today? What did Ted Cruz do on Fox News? You know, from the point of view of the, this research that this is based on, all of that's more or less irrelevant. Like what is happening is structural. And the, and so the changes that need to be undertaken are, are structural. Right. And you reference a lot in that intro, the American Civil War. Can you talk about kind of the similar events leading up to that tragedy and why we might be in that same environment now? Well, I mean, the fascinating thing about reading about the lead up to the first civil war, which was totally foreign to me as a Canadian, right? I was never taught it in school. So I, I was really kind of like looking, going to this history, looking for answers about contemporary America is how little anyone saw it coming. I mean, you know, Fort Sumter happened. Jefferson Davis said, it, it, this is probably nothing. This is probably just a, the end of a, a little bit of politics. Um, you know, it was so, they were so unprepared for it that they had to go to Europe to get guns. Um, which is, uh, you know, kind of kind of astonishing. Uh, and the reason it's astonishing is because in the hindsight of history, you know, the trends had been very consistent for 30, 40 years where, you know, you have people beating senators on the floor of the Senate to, with canes because they are over slavery. You have people dueling at West Point over slavery. You have every time a new territory opens, you basically re have to re-prosecute the entire question of slavery as it enters. You have bloody Kansas. You have the nullification crisis. And yet, with all of that, they, they still didn't want to see it coming. And I think we're kind of in, a, in the same moment now where the deep trends are pointing one way, right? And yet, people still really kind of don't want to see it. Right. It's really is fascinating. You had a little section there at the intro, the desire not to see what is coming. So I thought that was pretty fascinating. And also, I mean, you just see a lot of that stuff there. It's unbelievable that they weren't really ready for that event. I mean, can you talk sure. more about kind of the predictions and the sensibility maybe that is uh, happening in the States, like the studies of why this, like what well, preparations are underway, et cetera? Well, the preparations are underway. You know, there are definitely people preparing for civil war, uh, like a lot of them. I've gone and met a lot of them and they're preparing for breakdown and they're in remote places in ohio they're well they're they're not that remote they're in they're in small towns in ohio they're all over america having prepper conferences and i attended those and you know met with accelerationists and met with people nazis and who are all preparing for the end of the republic and for a, a war to follow it um and then of course on the other hand you have the military preparations for um for a civil conflict which are quite complicated in which they really are, the, the military will be extremely hamstrung. They're, they're, they face a very difficult technical legal situation over uh, if they ever had to encounter, say, an armed militia who decided not to listen to the federal authority anymore, which is the subject of chapter one of, of the book. They The, the military faces um, a real problem getting basic things like situational awareness in in combat in those situations, um, which, you know, was, they saw that in the L.A. riots of 92 when they called in the troops and also in Arkansas where they had to call in the troops in the 50s. So, um, yeah, there, there's there's certainly people preparing for it. But on the other hand, it seems to me like 
Joe Biden is not preparing for it. <laughs> you know, that there are a lot of people for whom this is not, that this is not um, something that they think is actually a possibility, even though literally tens of millions of their fellow citizens are readying themselves. Right. No, it is incredible. And there's a lot of talk, especially in the alternate media, definitely not in maybe the corporate media, but there are people talk those, put those two worlds to, words together, civil war, or we're in a low conflict. And it just takes that one match point or one match to really turn that off. And your intro, that first dispatch is about these conflicts between the perceived patriots who do not trust the federal government and the the military response by the federal government. Can you talk about how you played that out in that first dispatch? Well, I mean, I talked to a series of very senior military people who agreed to talk to me. And I, of course, talked to sheriffs as well, like interpositional sheriffs, which are uh, the, the kind of, I would say, the spearhead of this moment, of this movement, at least in government, because they occupy a kind of strange place between, uh, you know, they're not legislated but they are elected and they have they have a kind of unique role in american politics where they're they many of them think they're in resistance to federal authority that's their role um so you know i talked to both sides of this to get the to get the a sense of uh what the combat would be like um i mean from a from a tactical point of view from a combat point of view there's there's unfortunately not much of a story i mean i wanted i kept going to these soldiers and saying like well what would you know can you give me some battle and they were like you know we're talking about the u.s marines here against a milit like it's going to be one-sided completely like you know one guy said we'll just turn off the water and that'll be it like you know like it's there there's uh there's it would be completely one-sided from a from a tactical military point of view even though there are plenty of ex-marines and there are plenty of highly trained soldiers in the militias um they just don't have the situational awareness or the and the the, the technological asymmetry is extreme even though they're the militias are highly armed and you know have access to drones and access to even low-grade nuclear weapons um you know the u.s marines are the u.s marines like they're not I, I I would not bet against them against anybody. Never mind, uh, you know, some people in in the woods in you know in an in in some rural county. So right. um, so from a military point of view, it, I, it's clearly one sided. But you know, as America learned in Afghanistan and Iraq and Vietnam, um, you can't really win a counterinsurgency. Uh, like you you can the only strategy is not to play. Um, you, you know, every time you win, like every time you win a battle, you lose more support from the community. And of course, in America, that would be even more extreme because, you know, the, the illegitimacy of any occupation would, um, would be total, uh, you know, the, I, the, the local, the, the, the local people would simply not tolerate it. And so, uh, it would likely spiral out of control, you know, right. um, and you, yeah, you also mentioned that the difficulty of, uh, putting troops against citizenry or whatever kind of group, anti-authoritarian group, is a legal issue. There's huge legal issues involved with that and Total consequences nightmare. of that as well. Total nightmare. I mean, even in the first civil war, Lincoln was barely able to get, uh, to suspend the right of habeas corpus. I mean, and he, uh, that was only through his particular procedural genius that he, he knew how to, like, he, he, he was a great manipulator of these things. And it was only through that that he was able to do it. Um, yeah, I mean, the problem is waging war against your own citizens who are entitled to rights. 
right? And who are entitled to procedure and legal procedure. And that creates a, a necessarily a two-tier system. And that that hampers intelligence gathering. You know, do you get how do you and, and you know you and when you when you hamper intelligence gathering, how do you hamper like how do you do psychological operations? Can you shut down the internet? Like th these are legal questions that actually are totally unresolved and are not not really clear at all. Um, and so it would be a it would be a total bureaucratic nightmare. I mean, Iraq was a bureaucratic nightmare, too. But in, in the case of, a, of what they call a full spectrum operation in the homeland, it would be a true it, it would be, you know, so complicated that it would be fought out in court forever. And no one would ever be satisfied with the answer, if you know what right. I mean. Right. I mean, it, it just uh, just doesn't seem plausible to be manageable. But it is interesting yeah. because you in that section, you do mention these kind of sheriffs that are about in the American kind of uh, zeitgeist, Arpaio, Mac, Clark, yeah. people we see on the news all the, often. And you just see that, that sensibility of the tension between states' rights or uh, local rights and the federal government. Is there really there? There really is that hard. And you mentioned like Finicum, the what was yeah. That whole, yeah. So this it's there. Well, they're they're slightly different. They're, I mean, they're they're sagebrush rebels. So they're more of a separate. I mean, the problem with dealing with the far right in America, I actually far right is really a wrong term. I prefer the term hard right. Is that they break and reform all the time, and they they, they take on new shapes all the time, and and they're they're a bunch of tiny little groups that have they share some sensibilities, but often they. They, they way they go one way and then they go another way and sometimes it's about tax evasion or tax avoidance and not paying your taxes other times it's about you know freedom from from uh you, you know government surveillance other times it's uh, you know it it, it really it, sometimes it just gets right into QAnon and you go straight into wild conspiracy theories right so it, it's very hard to put your finger on exactly what they are but the constitutional sheriffs are like they're a body they're they, they have conferences this. All right, they have five, um, you said there were 500 guys in one. No, yeah, like I, I mean, there's there's uh, there's also, um, you know, with these sheriffs, there's also a real strange kind of um, love of spectacle. Like they 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 really want to participate in media operations like they want to. They're 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 constantly promoting themselves like and they're and they're doing like like Arpeo puts prisoners in pink underwear and makes them wear pink uh and he, and then he goes on book tours and and has pink and has pink handcuffs with it. So it's, you know, where the like where the line between your super serious emissary of constitutional order and you're just you know uh, making jokes about it, it, it. It's kind of a hard line to see. Right, but it does play into this whole you know just what happened yesterday, uh, January sixth event, which is really yeah. kind of like a could be perceived partially as a right-wing populist revolt. I mean, and, and the consequences of it. So, I mean, I think mm -hmm. that it's, you're really there. We're close to something. Well, yeah. I mean, you know, when that event happened, I was not really surprised at all. I mean, it isn't really my thought, but somebody on Twitter the other day said that January 6th was, um, it was like the 1993 World Trade Center bombing. It was like the, it was like the first, it was a serious attempt and it was coming, but it was not, it's not the big one. Right. It's not it's not the one with the organization. It's not the one with the 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 planning.
Right. Uh, like it was, it, I mean, to me, people want to call it an insurrection. I, I wouldn't, I, I don't think it meets the definition of that. I mean, you know, I have been in the weeds with this book of the technical definitions of like, what's an insurrection, what's civil strife, what's civil war, what's, you know, what's a riot, what's a rebellion. I, I don't think it really meets the, the standard of political coherence required to be an insurrection. Um, but, you know, nonetheless, um, you know, the, the other thing that was really, you know, more troubling about January 6th than the event itself, at least for me, was uh, the fact that the politicians in, who, who there, there were politicians encouraging it. So that alone is really troubling, where you have Josh Hawley raising his fist to encourage people who then attack him and which he has to be protected from the people he's encouraging. That seems to me like um, madness, you know, like the simple, the simple, like the death drive, like there's something suicidal about that impulse. And then also the fact that they're not able to, um, to use legal method against those, like that, 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 that they, they would not investigate a cause of the right in their own institution. I mean, that just shows, well, what, how do you expect your institutions to survive if you won't protect it? Uh, you know, if you won't, if you and, and, and the, the, the scene yesterday where not one, only Liz Cheney and Dick Cheney came to respect the, the, the to give a moment of silence to the to the guard who was killed. I mean, that was chilling to me because that really shows, you know, violence happens a lot of places like, you know, Canada, I know, seems very nice and calm. But like we had we had um, we imposed martial law in 1970. The country has almost ended twice in my lifetime. Uh, you know, these things happen to countries. It's really a question of how you respond to them when they do and and how they and how they shape discourse afterwards, if you know what I mean. I do. I mean, it is it is incredible how this you're right. It's a lot of the terminology has been politicized. But yeah, uh, yeah whether it's an insurrection or what it, was, it wasn't violent enough, but there was that element of force. So there something definitely happened. And it's just like one of those escalations i think or or accelerations like you mentioned accelerationism in your book too it's like yeah these things are moving forward then you'd kind of talk about i think is another very important point is this kind of lone wolf kind of uh, activated individuals and the frustrations of people you talk about demographic change as a mm -hmm. predicate to kind of civil war can you kind of talk about your inquiries into that and your research into those themes well, I mean, one of the big factors for civil war, I mean, there, there are several of them environmental. I mean, the two big ones are when democratic institutions lose their sense of legitimacy and when people start believe, stop believing in them. So that's happening in a very dramatic way uh, in the United States um, and accelerating. And we can talk about that maybe later. But the, the other one is that as you have dominant ethnic groups um in what in whatever country and as it's not that they lose power it's not that they lose anything it's that compare it's that groups below them rise towards them and it start to achieve equality that's what causes violence that's a major driver of violence um you know and that's not specific to american uh race like that happens everywhere like that happened in india and it ha it's happened in uh, it happens all over africa it happens all over the middle east so if you're at like there are many many components to this t horrible machine but that that to me is sort of the main source of 
terrible energy. And, you know, it's fascinating. The, the, the big study that came out of the about who was at the, the January 6th riot, it was exactly that. That was the main driver. Only only about 15 percent were from militias. It was people who are, who are not necessary, who are not poor. It was just they were from places where they'd recently seen growth in African-American and Latino uh, populations and prosperity. And so they, that was the and that was the it was a reaction against that. So it's like a dislocation. So they feel threatened. And I think that insurrection, you call the insurrection or whatever, they look 100%, almost 100% white. Like I barely even oh, saw, yeah. I mean, it was, I don't even think it was 99%. I mean, there wasn't, I don't remember seeing one Latino or one African-American there. So I think that's very telling. No. Maybe I'm wrong. Yeah. But maybe I'm right. wrong. So, I, I don't remember one either. I mean, I would yeah. certainly say that the, the, the far right people that I meet, I mean, there are exceptions. But uh, there's one, like, they're almost all white. For sure they are. Right. And, so, I mean, so I think that's a very important component for people trying to figure out what's going on in, in the United States. And can you kind of talk about the lone wolf attitudes or, like, uh, how these assassinations in the past could be harbingers of, of something that could happen in the near or late future? Yeah, I mean, you know, what what the, what the research what the researchers are afraid of is not necessarily like it's not um james bond it's not like al-qaeda in some cave plotting attacks that then happen in america or plotting assassinations of presidents or something like that um they can they can handle that the secret service can handle all of that um what is very hard to handle is what they call stochastic terrorism which is people who essentially self-radicalize and this can happen incredibly quickly it can happen seemingly in matters of weeks, which makes predicting it and therefore controlling it really hard, right? And which is the job of the Secret Service. But it, it, you know, it becomes very difficult when essentially you've got this like bubbling hatred in America and the hyper-partisanship that is so fueled with rage and which, and which absolutely dominates uh, this, um, this, this the country as it stands and then uh and then that kind of explodes it spikes into violent people i think they found someone trying to attack kamala harris who was exactly that way it was just recently oh, released right. yeah well you had the but one that, shooting you had the left wing shooting on the yeah. right wing uh congressman right was it scalise or something I think that yeah was there's that it, it left wing violence is much smaller but it is it is real it's just not quite. It's just not as sizable as right-wing violence. Um, it's. It, I, I think it's about. I, I, I don't, I'm not sure I have the number. I think it's about seven percent uh, of all, of the of violence is uh, is left-wing violence. Not you do, not, yeah. not particularly significant. Right. You do mention chop and stuff, but the right wingers are much more. Yeah, and you know the left has a way to, of destroying itself very quickly, right? Like it becomes unsustainable very quick. I mean, that's true of both sides, but. Um, certainly the left-wing stuff seems to peter out um, much more rapidly. And what kind of, what else uh, do you portend like for these kind of, this kind of individualized radicalization? Like what do you expect to see? Well, I mean, I think the thing that worries me is not like, you know, there's been a lot of assassination in American history. Like one of the secret servant agents I talked to said, it's part of the political process here. Right. Like, you know, the, the one out of 11 American presidents, I think it's slightly smaller than that now, um, have been assassinated. You know, that's a that's a pretty high number. 
Like that's a, you, you, if you took that job and one out of 11 people were killed doing it, uh, you know, that would be a, that would be, you'd get danger pay for that. Right. Um, so it's not really necessarily the assassination that's worrying. It's, is there room in America now to see a president as a national symbol of unity? Like when JFK was assassinated, it was, he was mourned by everyone, like truly by everyone. And it was treated as a national catastrophe by everyone. Um, I guess not by Jimmy Hoffa, but by everyone else. Um, and, um, you know, that, that would not happen anymore. I mean, I talked to the sociologist of, of um, assassination and he said, that's, that's the key thing. Often, often assassinations can either unify a country or they can just exacerbate the, the divisions uh, much more ex exponentially. And I, we're clearly at a moment where if that happened, it would just, you know, there would, there would, not, there would not be mourning uh, right. by one half. It would be, yeah. let's man the barricades, I think. And you talk, I mean, yeah. you can see all the threats against Trump. And then he said, like, this division was here before I got here. So, like, the the battle lines are being more clarified, I guess, is one way to put it. Um, yeah, yeah, for sure. And you talk also kind of, you had this idea of, like, the fall of New York. Can you kind of expand upon, you know, what would happen if uh, to the city of New York in the event in the future event of this? Yeah, uh, well, you know, the amazing thing is they have, the modeling now is so good that they know when a hurricane hits New York, what streets it'll hit, right? And uh, so, you know, th this really was a case of like the, like the, um, like the day after where they just take the scientific data and just kind of make it real, like make it sustainable. Like I, I, I managed to interview a, a reinsurer you know, that seemed to me like the most reliable person to talk to about possibilities because, you know, they deal with huge scales of information and um, and and they eventually and, and, you know, people make trillion dollar bets on these guys opinions of it. Right. Like they they and they're and they're quite certain that New York and the whole eastern seaboard is quite vulnerable to hurricanes through climate change. Uh, and with with the rise in sea levels, especially, it's going to be much more um, vulnerable. And of course, the thing is, New York is New York. Like Miami is a great town and New Orleans is a great town. Um, but New York is the center of the world. And uh, if, if New York were to fall, uh, the consequences of that for everyone would be just absolutely catastrophic. And then the other thing is with, with New York, um, because of the density of infrastructure, it's un unlike, unlike New Orleans or Houston or Miami, uh, you know, if, if, a, if a square kilometer of New York floods, the, the, the cost of rebuilding that is, it, I mean, virtually impossible to rebuild, like, because you just won't have the tax base to be able to do it. So then you do have real, really catastrophic scenarios because it's so vulnerable. And then as I was finishing the book, really, uh, Trump canceled the seawall, which to oh, me wow. is like one of the most, I mean, there's a lot of irresponsibility going on, but to me, that is insane. I mean, that, that really is like, that really is like you are in possession of New York city and you're not going to, and you know, it's in danger and you're not going to protect it. That is astonishing to me. Like of all the bad decisions of all the bad decisions in this book of all, like of the Josh, that's the one that it's like, like you, you're, 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 you're putting New York at risk. You've got to be kidding me. 
right? Like you, you like who, right. how, how many countries in history have ever had a possession like New York City, and you're gonna and you're gonna put it at risk out of like some kind of like oh it's not gonna happen. I mean, I, I'm still flustered by it. Like I still <laughs> I still can't quite believe it. Like it, it just seems to me like a, an act of pure madness. I mean, it's true that nobody gets elected preventing a catastrophe. You know that, and that's true everywhere in the world. But you know, New York, like, how can you leave it exposed? It's just bizarre. It's very strange, especially just uh, just an asset block like that is. And you broke just it as up an be- asset. Yeah, yeah. And you broke like, it up between I, a woman who lives there as two sisters, right? Urban and yeah. rural. And I think that that sure. urban and rural duality is very important. Point. Can you? Yeah, that? I mean, I tried to get it. I tried to, you know, I I created these characters, but. Really, they're based on demographic information. I tried to give like, you know, there's no such thing as an average American. Like America's too strange and too diverse. And like there's too it's too it's too weird. Like there's too many different parts to America to for there to be a typical American. But I, I, I you know, I did the exact financial situation of the average people. I put one of them in rural in Iowa and I put one of them in New York. And then I just saw the, you know. Ec- the economic uh, predictions and environmental predictions about food supply and of course the uh, climate change refugees from um, from New York which would create I mean that's the other thing like if New York fell the the number of climate change refugees would be epic fast just extraordinary just incredible yeah yeah just yeah. millions and millions of people I mean yeah it's it's just like there's a and you talk about I think in your intro you talk about America as complex systems, overlapping systems. If some of those fall, we're in, this country's in deep trouble. Would you agree with that? Yeah, I mean, the reason I did it as fiction is because the theory, like the ab, the, the 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 trends behind it, are what they call a complex cascading system. So that means that it's like the weather. It's like each thing feeds into itself, right? Like I, like one like. It, bad, you know, the seawall is actually a perfect example because, like, you you have this anger. It leads to the election of Trump. The Trump is there because of these bad, the, the bad, uh, because of the electoral college. This leads to Trump. Trump makes a decision about the wall, the, the about the seawall. The seawall leads to climate change refugees, which leads to more anger. Like, it all feeds into itself. It's not. It's not like. I, you know, there's a lot of books where it's like, here's hyperpartisanship is ripping ac- across the country. Here's the environmental catastrophe. It's, it's ripping apart the country. But they're all of a piece. They all feed into each other. Right. And and, and it, yeah, so th- that's why I think actually the unimaginable keeps happening. That's why we keep being surprised. Right. It's like, you know, if you'd gone back five years and said there'll be tanks on the streets of Washington on July 4th, no one would have believed you. Like if you'd gone back five years and said, you know, a Republican president will openly support the dictatorship of North Korea, you know, no conspiracy theorist would have imagined that, right? Like it was too, too, too crazy. Um, but it keeps happening, right? Like the, the, the unimaginable keeps happening. And it's this complex cascading nature of the system, which makes things, you know, turbulent, makes them turbulent, really. Right. And I mean, I think that this whole thing with COVID, too, is exacerbating the problems, definitely increased the haves and have nots. So we're it's getting higher and higher. And I, somebody mentioned in the comments, there was somebody who talks about Civil War often. I don't know if you're familiar with Tim Poole. Are you familiar with Tim Poole? Um, was he? He's, I, I'm not he's a journalist. Sure. He's, he's a, a journalist, journalist I, but he talks I, about I there's, a, there's a low level Civil War. So it ties right into your book. 
So I recommend yeah. you just typing in Tim Pool Civil War. I will look that up for sure. Yeah, and yeah. Uh, it really does time because he's just showing the culture war is leading to kinetic war. Like so, uh, yeah. He got swatted last night. Somebody, you know what swatting is, where the yeah. SWAT team comes through the door. Like literally, the cops were. He was broadcasting, streaming like this, and the cops went in. I mean, it's not funny, but I don't know who did it. Maybe somebody in the chat knows that. But oh uh, God. it is interesting because it really ties into your your themes in your books of what he's saying. So I would definitely check that out. Um, right. Do you mind taking a few questions, Stephen? No, not at all. Uh, Lee asks, who would you like to see elected in the next presidential election? And what can we do to avert a civil war? It looks like two questions. Um, I don't really think it matters who gets elected in like, you know, one thing that I think is really hardest to convince people of is that everything in this book would be true if Hillary Clinton had been elected in 2016. Um, you know, the, the, the problems are structural, right? Like the, the thing to worry about is not who's going to get elected in 2024. The thing to worry about is that in 2040, 30 percent of the population will control 68 percent of the Senate. So in those conditions, whoever, whatever is elected will be illegitimate. Right. And, 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 the, and the structure of power, people will not regard it as legitimate and they won't really believe they're living in a democracy anymore. And from that comes violence. So to me, the, the, it, I'm sort of answering the second question by not answering the first one. Like what needs to happen? And I mean, there's two things that I think really need to happen to avoid a civil war. One is the FBI has to be given enormous resources and devote itself with fury to uh disrupting and destroying domestic terrorism in the United States. And that is a extreme for various reasons that are in the book. That's an extremely complicated undertaking that will be a generational task. It, it's like it will be like getting the mob out of an NYPD. It's going to take a lot to do. Um, and, and then the other thing is, like, I, I think the time has come for really large scale structural thinking about U.S. government about whether the constitution still works, which I don't believe that it does, and whether whether even, even options like whether secession is a more viable, provides viable alternatives to a, a, you know, a country that's you know, slipping out of democracy, right? And, and, and is increasingly incapable of governing itself. So you know, I would say, I don't worry about who's gonna win in 2024. I don't particularly think it will make much difference. Um, I think what matters is these structural issues, which really need incredible attention. Right. And you mentioned, I think, a stat in your book, 88 percent of Repu young Republicans or Republicans don't believe the last election is fair. That means that, you know, almost half of this country doesn't believe the election was legit. So, um, yeah. yeah. So it's and then really what happens in 20 what happens in 2028 when Josh Hawley is elected? by this with less than 10 million votes with 10 million votes under the popular vote which could easily happen right i mean right like joe biden and donald trump won their elections by the same number of uh seats in the in the electoral college joe biden was had won the popular vote by 7 million votes and donald trump lost the popular vote by 3 million votes you know that's not and th that number is only growing Right. That number is only, that, that division is only growing. So, you know, we're very used to thinking of the right not wanting the U.S. government and regarding the government as illegitimate and thinking about secession. But really, the left is going to have to ask itself, 
whether it is invested in this system, which clearly is non-functional, right? And, 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 and does not really reflect their, doesn't really represent, I mean, five out of the current nine Supreme Court justices were selected by presidents who did not win the popular vote. You know, it, what is the when they make their ruling on abortion, how many people will really regard it as totally legitimate? I mean, I'm, well, there was a new study. Twenty percent of Americans have faith in their electoral system. Twenty percent. That's a that's a low number. Right. And then on the other hand, 33 percent of Americans think it's OK to use violence against their own government. So, uh, you know, th th this is this is not this is not voting well. Right. Like right. this requires deep change. This requires deep change and really deep thought, just like you said. And I think that even the secessionists on both sides of the aisle, there were I, I can't remember the stats, but I think it was close that both sides said, yeah, we should secede. Like there was a third of them that said, yeah, secede. So, I mean, that idea higher now, just it's, yeah, it's over 50 percent for Republicans now, and it's 41 percent of Democrats in California. Wow. Right. Wow. So it's I mean, it's growing and it grows all the time. Yeah, no, that's that is that's really pre-Civil War stuff where you're going to get yeah. to the point like and that's kind of like dividing uh, what happened in India. You mentioned India, India and Pakistan after World War Two. That was a secession. They cre oh, well, they created Pakistan, I guess. But that was it. That was. Yeah. Disaster. Yeah. I mean, and that was well and that was, you know, then they had massive resettlement and massive and massive partition. I mean, and, you know, that was in a compared to the American attempt at secession, civilized conversation, right? I mean, that was, that was done through, that was done through an agreement. That was done through signed, I mean, India signed over resources to Pakistan, right? They gave them their portion of the, of, of the, of the national uh, budget, right? So like that, that's in some ways a more civilized version of, of any, I mean, it is a more civilized version. And that was of course, bloody on an epic scale. Right. Yeah. No, I mean, but we're we're really on kind of a close to the looking over the edge, I think, a lot. And you go into greater detail in your book. You talk about outbreak of violence. You talk about the Republic ending. So you're really discussing really important stuff. But what uh, would you like to add or is there anything I missed before we wrap up this fascinating discussion? No, I, I think we've touched on all the major points. I mean, I, I just think it's really like one of the reasons I wrote this book is because, you know, you see people obsessed over horse race politics over like what's happening today. And it's just like, you know, I, I don't really think those are the issues. Like I, like they, they, they really don't reflect what I see as the real crisis facing America. I mean, I would also say that if any country can get out of this, it would be America. Like America is the country of reinvention. It is the country where they have, they have made radical political ideas work. And they have they have reimagined the the basis of government from the ground up and made it work and become the greatest country in the world on that basis. So, you know, I don't think I don't think it's all I don't think there's no hope at all. But I do think one hope the, the hope that needs to go is the hope that things are going to work out. That like you know somehow this the sixties will peter out and we'll all go into the seventies and it'll all be you know loose and disco and so on. Like. That's not what's well, going to so. happen. Like it's 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 either going to you, you know, as I say at the end of the book, like reinvention or fall. Those are those are the options. Those are the options, right? Really fascinating, really great book. Um, where's the best place to get the next Civil War? Well, 
Amazon, speaking Amazon. of decline and fall. And this is this is an audio book too, so that's important. So if people want to listen to the book, yeah. they can do that as well. And that's on Amazon. That's and yeah. if people want to reach out to you or contact you, what's the best means to do so? I'm on Twitter at, at Stephen Marsh. And, you know, if you want to email me, I'm stephenmarsh at gmail.com. Put that in the stone show notes, Stephen Marsh, all one word, right? Steve. Yeah. M-A-R-C-H-E. R-C-H-E, yeah. And again, the title of the book is The Next Civil War, Dispatches from the American Future, just published January 4th, 2022 by Stephen Marsh. Thanks so much for your time. Really appreciate it. Thanks for having me. Great to be there. All right, stay there, stay there. All right, perfect. All right.